Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 3 through 19. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. Good to see so many of you. I just, if if you would allow me, I just wanted to say um, about the graduates, first of all, just Taylor and Colin and Mark and Matthew, Matt and Ann, well done. I mean, just well done. As I think about the five of you, uh, I, just, I, I just felt like that was appropriate just to say well done. And then I would remind all of you that uh, in our church, we believe in covenant children. Uh, we believe when we baptize children, we make vows to one another. That doesn't end, just like the work of parenting doesn't end. I, I, so I've been told I've not done it yet. Uh, but when you send them away to college, I don't think the work of parenting ends. In many ways, it's just beginning. <laughs> Uh, and so our work in supporting and encouraging one another uh, in, through the fearfulness of sending your kid away uh, out of your home doesn't end either. And so I would encourage you, take those five names of those five kids, put it on a card. Would you commit to praying for them for the next four years? Would you text them every now and then and say, hey, thinking about you, praying for you? Would you send them gift baskets in the mail? Would you text their parents and say, man, I'm praying for, for, you know, for Colin today? I mean, could we, not be, could we not do that for one another? I think that would be beautiful. Okay? Let's think about it that way. Uh, because we, we, as Brandon said so well, we want, uh, the goal of this church is to send kids as missionaries to the schools that God has called them to, not just to survive, but to thrive and to take the gospel uh, to people in those places. But the way the gospel always moves forward is through the prayers of God's people. And so pray for them that they could be missionaries to the places they've gone. 
that's what my hope is for us anyway. Now, we come this morning to this passage in Luke chapter 17. Uh, we're in the series on the Gospel of Luke that we've been uh, engaged in for quite a while now. You'll remember the first part of Luke's Gospel was meant to answer the question, who is Jesus? The second part, however, beginning at the end of chapter 9, is really uh, meant uh, for a different reason. Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem in chapter 9, verses 51 and following. And really the whole rest of the gospel is meant to answer the question, what does it mean to live as a disciple? Because there is no Christianity without discipleship. That's what Jeff talked about last week. Jesus said in John's gospel, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. So if you're a Christian, you'll be where Jesus is, right at his heels, doing what he's doing. And all of these teachings and stories from Luke 9 through 21 are really a part of what a travel narrative is the way that I would put it to you. As Jesus makes his way from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, where he's going to be arrested and crucified upon a cross and put into the grave, and of course raised from the grave by the power of the Father three days later. And so to follow him, to follow him, to be where he is, to be doing what he's doing, means that you take up your own cross, that you say goodbye to your life, you let good and kindreds go, as Martin Luther's famous hymn puts it, and you follow Jesus into suffering because it's only when you lose your life that you find it. Now, there's only one way. There's only one way uh, to do that, to find the strength and the courage to do that, and it's gratitude. It's the power of gratitude. You see the title of the sermon this morning, The Power of Gratitude. If you look at that Colossians passage again uh, that Jonathan read to us a minute ago, Paul's praying that these Christians, verse 10, would bear fruit in every work that they would be full of spiritual power to endure and to live with patience and joy, verse 11. But how? How do you get the spiritual power in your life that Paul's praying for these people? He says, listen, he says, bearing fruit in every good work, strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. And so the mechanism of gospel advance and gospel power in every one of our lives is gratitude. And that's what this passage in Luke 17 is all about. And so I want you to see these three things here from this passage. There's some really good stuff here in many ways. I wish we had two or three weeks. Uh, and I might get so knotted up about not doing a good job this morning, we might come back to some of this because there's some important things here, uh, particularly for our cultural moment. But you'll see in these verses, first, the necessity of gratitude. Secondly, the mechanics of gratitude. And then thirdly, I just want to talk for a few minutes about the practice of gratitude. So why do we need it? What are the mechanics of it, and then how do we really begin to put it into practice? Those are the three points, and they're the three points in the outline I gave you, so we'll uh, walk through this together. Okay, so let's start first with just, I think the scripture teaches us about the necessity of gratitude, and it really comes out in the problem that Jesus introduces at the very beginning of the text in verse 3. So if you'd look there with me, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, there's a certain expectation this creates, doesn't it? And it's just this, that we we are promised here, and not only here, but in many other places, that we should expect that we will sin against people and be sinned against. And it sometimes feels like this happens more often in our relationships at church than in our relationships with non-Christian friends, doesn't it? Or at work, or wherever it might be. And I think that's been a stumbling block for a lot of people. But the reason for that is, is because many times, it's, it's not because your non-Christian friends are better to you than your Christian friends are. It's because those relationships, those other relationships where there's less pain, and there's 
uh, there's less hurt oftentimes. Those relationships are not really community. They're what uh, sociologists have called pseudo-community. But Christianity commits us to be far more invasive with one another. What does he say? If, if your brother sins, rebuke him, right? So we're to be invasive, to not settle to live on the surface, but to get to the deeper issues of the heart with one another, to be intimate enough with one another, to open our hearts to one another in such a way that the result is that we really do have the opportunity to wound one another deeply. And so there's a principle here that if, if, you're, not wor- if you're not having to work through conflict in your marriage in your friendships, in your community group, if you're not in those places being forced to work through conflict, then the community that you're experiencing is not real community. It's pseudo-community. The way to know that your marriage or the friendships in your life or whatever, the, whatever community you might be a part of has passed beyond just pseudo-community to community, to real community, is that there's conflict at some level. You're living close enough to one another that your hopes... Your, your heart's hope, you know, you've become intertwined together. Your heart and your hopes have become intertwined. Uh, that, and that you, your sin and your selfishness is starting to rub up against the other person's sin and selfishness because you're living in such close proximity creates conflict. And over and over again, the Bible warns that this is going to happen and it doesn't mean something's wrong. It actually means something's really Right? And so the Christian response to this, according to Jesus' teaching here, but of course not only here, is to forgive. And so what he's saying is this. Don't measure the strength of a relationship by the absence of conflict. The true measure of the strength of any relationship is the ability to push past conflict and to forgive. So what do we mean by forgiveness? I guess we probably need to to, to answer that question, don't we, and define our terms here. And I want to define it, we could do it a number of different ways, but this morning I'd like to say it like this. I think um, from what Jesus teaches here that to forgive means this, that when somebody, here's my definition, when somebody hurts or offends you, no matter how severely, that you are able to meet that hurt with a supernatural, spirit-generated capacity to remain compassionate toward that person even while you insist upon their wrongness in the event. It's a long definition. (laughs) Let me say it again. That forgiveness, as Jesus teaches it here, is a supernatural, spirit-generated capacity to remain compassionate to the person that's hurt you, even while you insist upon their wrongness in the event. So forgiveness is the ability to remain compassionate. But it doesn't sweep sin under the rug, see? It doesn't doesn't ignore the sometimes terrible consequences of the things that that we're... you know, able to do to one another, okay? Forgiveness doesn't mean you, look, you, you let the other person off the hook. No, they're very much still on the hook, and that's why you should feel so compassionate towards them. And what a great gift. What a great gift this would be to the world that we live in in our culture, in this cultural moment, because we are a people as a culture who are so easily offended and so quick to condemn anybody who disagrees with us. But Jesus says a person who is a Christian should have a completely different approach because they've experienced a radical reorientation of their inner life that has resulted in this supernatural ability to be attacked but to remain compassionate towards the attacker. But to respond, not respond with aggression, you know, but also not respond by going on the offensive, but also not respond by becoming defensive either, but to respond in love. 
I mean, I've been thinking, what a difference between the response in Baltimore over these past few weeks and the response of, say, Martin Luther King Jr., who faced much more tangible injustice and hatred. And do you remember what he said? Here's some of his words. Martin Luther King Jr., we shall, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. He said, we will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us, and we will still love you. We'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer and love. He was a Christian. Because that's what Christians do. And I say this, you know, I say this because this, this, this sense of supernatural, spirit-generated ability to do this because of what Jesus really calls us to in the text, what this text says. It's, it's one thing to respond with, to sin with forgiveness, okay, if it's a one-off event. It's one thing if it's a one-off event. But look at how Jesus portrays it here beginning in verse 4. What about a brother who sins against you again and again and again, okay? If he sins against you seven times in a day, Jesus says, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Don't miss that. You must. You must. I mean, this is something that is completely off the charts of what is normal or even wise if you use the categories of conventional wisdoms. What the kind of advice that you might hear in a counselor's office, for example. Jesus is saying, imagine the worst possible scenario the worst possible thing, the worst possible event that somebody could do to you. Imagine the person who has hurt you the very most in your life. You must forgive even them. You must. We would say, but, you know, what, what about boundaries? But, you know, when am I beginning to enable the other person? These are the sorts of questions. So the very proposition makes you feel a little vulnerable. And if that's the case... If what Jesus teaches here makes you feel that way, if, if, if you feel like if you were to take him seriously at this point, then you would really begin to lose control of your life, can I just say, then you're getting really close to coming to terms with the teaching. We don't have, you know, we, we, you just stare at this and say, how in the world are we even supposed to do this? And what's fascinating is, is that's exactly what happened to the disciples, isn't it? Look at verse 5. How do they respond to what Jesus is saying here? They just, in the middle, you know, all they can say at the end of this kind of teaching is, Lord, increase our faith. You know what that means? What you're asking us to do is impossible. We don't possess the emotional resources to do that. That's too much. That's, it's, it, you know, that's absolutely too much. And in the realm of human strength and resources, it absolutely is. Because the natural and sinful response of the human heart to being sinned against is not to forgive, definitely not to forgive seven times, but instead to push the hurt to the subterranean level of the heart. But when we do that, we create a root system, the Bible says, of bitterness. We live with a long memory of hurts and disappointments and unresolved conflicts. And Jesus uses the image in verse 6 of a mulberry tree, which was significant because it was known at the time for its elaborate root system which rabbis claimed could remain in the earth for as many as 600 years. You could not pull these things up. 
So the natural way of navigating these types of situations is that one offense, often, one offense towards us gets seven negative responses. One offense creates a feedback loop of anger and resentment. One offense, and we keep going over it again and again and again, one offense gets seven or more negative responses, but Jesus turns this around and he says seven offenses. Seven offenses should get one response all the way through forgiveness. It doesn't matter how many times the person sins against you. It doesn't matter how much you've already given to the relationship. Compassion. Patience. You don't give up on the person. Listen. (laughs) I'm a complete mess. Okay? Maybe I'm alone. But I'm a complete mess. And I know. I know the hardest part about being my friend or being my father or being my wife or being, you know, my child, whatever it might be, the hardest part of it is that the very worst things about me, my moodiness, my aloofness, my sin, the worst part is I can't seem to stop being like that. I mean, I want to. I really want to. I hate those things about me, but the people who are the closest to me, they get the very worst of me, and they get it over and over and over and over again. And please, nobody, amen, okay? Especially if you're sitting in this area, generally up here. There are appropriate amen times and there are not. And that was not one of them. Because you see, I just can't seem to stop doing the things I hate. And so I'm, I'm here to say what I need, what I desperately need is for somebody who will meet me in the middle of that struggle with compassion and patience and forgiveness. And when that happens, I can tell you, in the very few moments, and I wish they were more... Um, numerous for me, and I wish it for you too, but in the few moments in my life when I've really experienced someone come at the very worst parts of me, honestly, but with compassion and understanding, it has transformed the shame that I feel into courage to get into the fight. Proverbs 19.11 says, It is man's great glory to overlook an offense. It's a glorious, glorious thing to do that. And my heart longs for relationships and friendships that provide that kind of safe harbor. And I bet your heart does too. And that's really the application of the teaching, isn't it? That as we live together, as we get into the routine of sinning against one another in the same ways over and over and over again as we are so want to do, that we learn not to respond to one another in anger, But no, the opposite of forgiveness is not just anger. It's also just even mild aggravation or impatience or whatever it might be. But instead that we would be compassionate. But how? How in the world? How do you do this? And it really boils down to these two things. And this first point is much longer than the last two, so don't start to panic. But um, it really boils down. The first thing is you really have to begin to see yourself. Or excuse me, you really have to begin to see uh, the other person rightly. This compassionate movement really does begin with a sense of not, not being twisted in your view of the other person, but seeing them rightly. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination, has, really, has a really brilliant, brilliant way of putting this. He says that whenever somebody wrongs us, one of the ways that we cope with it is we begin to characterize the person who hurt us. You know what a characterization is, right? Uh, you know, if somebody was to draw a character, character, I can't even say it, if they were to caricaturize me, what they would do is they would, I have a, I have a pretty, um, my chin is pretty significant, and so you, I would get the Jay Leno treatment probably in the, caric, the caricature, 
Or, I, you know, I have, we call them Bennett ears. I mean, these are big things that just get droopy with age. And so, you know, you might put, put big ears on the side of my face. I mean, when, when you see caricatures of Obama, you typically see the big kind of protruding ears. What you do is, in a caricature, you take um, a, a feature of a person and you overemphasize it uh, to, to make a point. And typically what we do is we begin to overemphasize another person's negative qualities. So if somebody steals from you and it's hurt you deeply, well, then they're just a thief, Right? If they've lied to you, they are a liar. That's all they are. Now, if you've lied to somebody else, well, you know, I'm complex. It's a little complicated. <laughs> right? It's complicated, but they are just a liar. Okay? Your perception of the other person gets distorted because you're hurt. And you begin to believe things about them that simply aren't true. And as a result, you don't see them rightly. Miroslav Volf Uh, who wrote about the conflict in the Balkans in the 90s, he said, forgiveness, this is a great quote, he says, forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and when I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So Jesus' description of the other person here is meant to evoke this compassion in us. This is a person in deep struggle, isn't it? They keep sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting. I I had a friend come to me not long ago, just broken, and he said, you know, I know what the right thing to do is. I just can't seem to make myself do the thing I know I'm supposed to do. And you know what that feels like, don't you? And yet the Bible says that Jesus is able to be compassionate towards us in our struggles against sin because he was tempted in the same way that we were. He, it was what he had in common with, uh, with us that ignited his compassion. And so it's impossible to stay angry at someone unless there's something that erodes in the commonality that you experience with them. It's impossible to stay angry at someone unless you feel morally superior to them. And in order to feel superior, you have to overemphasize their sins and weaknesses. You dehumanize them. That's what you do. And so it's a matter of seeing the other person rightly, but of course to see the other person rightly, you need to see yourself rightly. And the only way to see yourself rightly is to not forget that you're a sinner in need of mercy too. If you're having a hard time forgiving. It's because you've excluded yourself from the community of sinners. And this, I think, is what Jesus is so concerned about, isn't it? Don't forget your sin as you deal with other people and their sins. He says, verse 3, pay attention to yourself. When somebody sins against you, the really big deal, listen, the really big deal when you're dealing with forgiveness, when somebody sins against you, the really big deal is that it puts you in spiritual danger because it's so easy in the midst of that experience to begin to feel morally superior to the other person and to live as if their sin and not your sin is the really, really big deal. And that becomes a justification for holding on to your anger so that a root of bitterness that causes trouble and defiles begins to grow up in your life. So that's the problem. And it's hard, isn't it? Increase our faith, the disciples say. In other words, we can't do this without a new heart, without the power of the Spirit. And so how do we begin to attack unforgiveness in our hearts? What's the solution? And the rest of the passage, and particularly the parables of the ten lepers in in, uh, 11 through 19, give us the answer. And the answer to this problem is gratitude. Gratitude. So come down to verse 11 uh, with me, and you'll see on the way to Jerusalem, remember, a travel narrative. So they're traveling to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to a village and is met by ten lepers, probably gathered together in a company because they have been ostracized from their own families and villages. And Jesus feels compassion for them, we're told, and he tells them to go and report to the priests so that they could be inspected and be brought back into the, excuse me, into the community. And so as they go, we're told they're healed of their leprosy. And nine of the ten 
when they saw that they were healed, continued on to the priests, and we are left to assume they just returned to their old life. But one turned back, verse 16, praising God with a loud voice, fell at Jesus' feet, and giving him thanks. Now Luke intentionally puts this material together this way to teach us a very important spiritual lesson, and that is this, that if you have a problem with forgiveness, it's because you have a problem with ingratitude. Forgiveness and gratitude go hand in hand. I mean, isn't that the lesson of the parable in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant? What was that man's problem? He was forgiven this massive amount of debt, and then he goes out and begins to choke uh, a guy who owes him a few bucks, right? He's, he had been forgiven much, but he was not grateful. He, his heart wasn't connected back to this event that had happened in his life. So the solution is gratitude, but immediately, immediately we see we have another problem. <laughs> we have another problem to solve. If the solution to unforgiveness is gratitude, what about the problem of our ingratitude? I mean, ten lepers are healed, but only one returns to say thank you. And even Jesus marvels. Look, verse 17. Weren't ten cleansed? Where are the nine? I mean, all ten should have returned, which leaves a question lingering in the air that the text is asking us to answer. Why, in my life, in my heart, why is gratitude so hard? Why did not all ten return? Why only one? I mean, my heart, we sang, could find 10,000 reasons to say thank you this morning. 10,000 kindnesses that too often go on un- unacknowledged. So why is it so easy to get upset at the one thing that doesn't go exactly the way that I'd like for it to? And there's an answer even to this question in the parable that actually takes place in between the teaching on forgiveness in the parable of the ten lepers, in the middle of the passage, verses 7 through 10. And here are Jesus' words. He says, Will any of you, if you've been serving, plowing, a ser- if you have a servant plowing or keeping sheep, will you say to him when he's coming to the field, Hey, come, sit, recline at table? You could, the crowds would start chuckling. And I, you should start chuckling too, because it's ridiculous. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and serve me while I eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. That word, unworthy, there, unworthy servant, doesn't mean a bad servant. doesn't mean a good-for-nothing servant. It's a very specific word. It means that in doing his duty, this servant hasn't earned anything from the master. He hasn't done anything that should merit him, the master's kindness or generosity. And so Jesus unmasks the real problem with my in gratitude, and it's my stubborn commitment to works righteousness. That at some level I still think that I can do some good work that will merit me something. That I can figure out how to be a pretty good guy and then everybody will like me and God will like me and he'll go to work to bless me. This works righteousness and it absolutely destroys ingratitude. And Jesus must pick up on this in the apostles' response to his teaching. They view this forgiveness he's talking about as something heroic, right? I mean, and and we might too. And so Jesus says, if you forgive like this, don't think that makes you something special. It's really not that impressive. Even your very best efforts don't merit you anything. They don't get you anywhere with God. See, that's, that's the issue. The source of our ingratitude is really pride. And I said earlier that the only way to stay angry with someone who has sinned against you is to convince yourself that you are morally superior to them. And so the same pride 
erodes gratitude as well. It causes you to feel heroic instead of feeling dependent. So instead, I mean, this is, this, this is where, this is the point of our repentance this morning. This is what's so gross that instead of thanking God for all that he has done for me and you, we instead live as if he should be the one thanking us for all that we had done for him. And there it is. Frederick Buechner has this wonderful little paragraph about forgiveness where he tries to explain the line in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh, And here's what he says. He says, Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our forgiving others. What he apparently is saying is that the pride, listen to this, the pride which keeps us from, from, from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us from accepting forgiveness. And will God please do something about it? So the problem is our pride. I'm a big deal. Okay, and if, I believe, if I'm a big deal, then if you mess with me, guess what? That's a big deal. Because I'm the big deal. And you just messed with the big deal, buddy, so now it's a big deal. You see? You see what I'm saying? I'm making fun, but that's really, that's, that's really it. Jesus here is trying to do something about it. I mentioned Baltimore. We are a privileged culture. We, we experience unprecedented wealth and freedom and opportunity. But listen, there's a difference between privilege and entitlement. And what's happened is, is our privilege is soured into entitlement. And entitlement is believing that we deserve wealth and freedom and opportunity just because. And it's a cancer. It's, listen, it's not a problem only with the political left. Please don't think that. This is a spiritual problem. And the reality is, Jesus says, turn your heart to this reality. We are unworthy servants. You see that, verse 10? We are unworthy servants. I mean, being a pastor doesn't get me anywhere with God. I love it when people ask me to pray for things as if my prayers somehow are, you know, well, you're a pastor, so you need to pray for this. Really? Okay. I hate to tell you, I don't have a direct line. There's not a little Batman phone in my office that I can pick up and like, you know, hey, you know, I'm not in direct communication. Because the reality is being a pastor doesn't get me anywhere with God. I'm an unworthy servant. At the end of, I hope, 50 years of ministry in this city, I, I hope somebody will stand on the stage and said all he did was his duty. I mean, Amber and Tony Ellswick, moving their four little girls to Nicaragua to tell people about Jesus, they are still only unworthy servants just doing their duty. Do you see, when you refuse to forgive, you're not remembering who you are. You're, you're a servant who's begun to act like a king. God has created you. He's sustained you. You owe him everything. And if you're a Christian, he's redeemed you. He's, he's the king. You're the servant. And when you turn to somebody else in your life and you say, you know, I'm not going to forgive that person for what they did to me. It's just too much. You, what you do is you, you're, you're, you're a servant who's begun to act like a king. You've begun to sit in the judgment seat that is only God's to sit in. And so what's the solution to this? And according to Jesus, the solution is faith. Verse 6. If you had faith... Like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And what's that mean? Jesus is saying, if you and I had even one ounce of understanding that we are sinners saved by grace, if we understand the gospel at all, we'd be able to forgive because it would be impossible to live with ingratitude. And what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God's free, unmerited, unchanging love and grace and acceptance of us in Christ Jesus. You see, the only way to get out of the incongruity of servants acting like kings 
is to see the beauty of the king who became a servant. You hear that? The only way to get out of the incongruity of being servants who begin to act like kings is to see the beauty of the king who became a servant. You'll never be able to forgive other people their sins against you until you see him dying on the cross to pay your great debt against him. You'll never stop putting yourself in the judgment seat until you see the real judge of the universe coming down out of the judgment seat and going to the court and being condemned for you. The king became a servant. And just a mustard seed of that truth, Jesus says, if it begins to really sink into your heart, you'd never try to act like a king ever again. You'd never be able to look uh, at somebody else and feel morally superior to them. You'd never withhold uh, the, th- the very thing they need. You'd have all of the strength and the resources that you need to move towards them in love. Okay? But lastly, one last thing, and then we need to be finished. How do we then practice gratitude? If gratitude is the solution, if grace is the, is the solution to the problem with our gratitude, I mean, how, do we, how do we then practice gratitude? Because this is what Jesus tells us to do. The disciples, says, the, the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith, verse 5, but, but uh, that's the wrong thing. The problem is not that we don't have enough faith to do this. The problem is is we're not using our faith in order to do it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've been talking a lot about, uh, we're reading this book as a staff, and it really is just over and over again, comes home. Here's what he said in, in one of the sermons in the book, Spiritual Depressions. He said, faith is not something that acts automatically. Faith is not something that acts magically. Many people, it seems to me, conceive of faith as if it were something similar to a thermostat in a heating apparatus. It's a great analogy. That you set your thermostat at a given level and that you want to maintain the temperature at a certain point and it it acts automatically. If the temperature is tending to rise above that, then the thermostat comes on, comes into operation and brings it down. And if you use your hot water and the temperature is lower, then the thermostat comes into operation and sends it up and so forth. So he says you do not have to do anything about it. The thermostat acts automatically and it brings the temperature back to the desired level automatically but faith is not like that instead he says faith is an activity it's something that has to be exercised it does not come into operation itself you and i have to put it into operation it's a form of activity and isn't that exactly what jesus is saying to the disciples here they respond to his teaching about forgiveness increase our faith lord and I, and that, that by the way that was they were trying to shut I, this is what i love i can't do that they're saying i can't do that so this conversation's over right they were shutting the con- well, Jesus, you're God, and I, I'm just, I'm a man, you know, so I can't do the things you did. And we, we do that all the time. We shut the conversation down, increase our faith. And he says, no, no. The problem is not that you don't have enough faith. He says, you're not using your faith. You're not putting it to work. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, and it would do it. Now, what in the world, how do we do this then? Three steps, just an application today. Here's really, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this. He says, the first thing you got to do is you got to first refuse to allow yourself to be controlled by the situation. That's the first part. So refuse to make excuses. You have to refuse to shut the conversation down. You have to take charge of yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. So a friend, uh, and this is a surprising friend given the story, a friend told me recently that he's begun to start his day every day in the shower by singing the old song, this is the day, this is the day. It's kind of a cheesy old hymn from the 70s or 80s or whatever. Uh, but he, he goes to the shower and he sings this song. So I thought, that's a good idea. And so I literally have tried, and I don't sing it in the shower. 
Um, but I, when I wake up, before I get out of the bed in the morning, literally I try to turn my, my mind the very first thing in the morning to just say, this is the day the Lord has made, and I will. Right? Capital W, capital I, capital L, capital L, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. I will rejoice and be glad in what he has made. And it's changed my life. Just that little practice. And with an issue of forgiveness, you can't just let your heart make excuses. I mean, you've got to be, we've got to be 100% intolerant of selfish anger and jealousy or self-pity or whatever the case might be with other people's sinning against us. So refuse to allow yourself to be controlled by the situation. Refuse to make excuses. But the second thing is, is then you exercise your faith. Uh, you, you, you rehearse the gospel promises to yourself. You fill your heart and mind with gospel content. So if it's an issue of forgiveness then you think about how God has forgiven you. So you might be thinking, you know, yes, he hurt me really bad, but then you have to go on beyond that. And you have to say, yes, but when I was God's enemy, he did not treat me as my sins deserved. But while I was still his enemy, Christ died for me to reconcile me to the Father. He is compassionate and slow to anger and rich in mercy uh, toward me. So see, unforgiveness means that the person's sin against you is the big deal. How they've treated you is a bigger deal than how Jesus has treated you. So what you have to do is you have to preach the gospel to yourself until the gospel becomes a bigger deal than the offense. And then what you do, the last thing is then you apply these gospel truths to whatever particular circumstance you're in. See, faith means viewing your circumstances, whatever they are, however painful they might be, through the lens of the gospel. And really this is a habit. It's a spiritual discipline that we need to make a part of our life. We need to stop more often... We need to fall at Jesus' feet and take the time to say thank you. That's what we're talking about. Don't be one of the nine that rushes off into the busyness of life. Be the one that returns. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, the psalmist says. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and give thanks to him and bless his name. Can I, those aren't suggestions. They're commands. Give thanks to him. Isn't a description of how you feel inside. It's an action. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a way of life. And the word gratitude, of course, comes from the Latin word that gratis, which means grace or gift. So don't for a second think that you're left to yourself to scratch and claw to the life that you're hoping for. If you believe that, then forgiveness will always be a problem for you. But if you remember, as this text would remind you, there's a Father in heaven working for you. And listen, nothing, no one, no setback, no offense, no sadness can get in the way of what he's doing, then and only then, the only thing left for you to do is to fall at his feet and to say thank you. And that is the undoing. That is the undoing of ingratitude. It's the undoing of pride. It's the undoing of unforgiveness. That we might become a people that honor and glorify him in our obedience. And that's our hope and prayer. And so let's pray together that that would begin to take place in us even as we finish this service this morning. Lord Jesus, would you come now? And in these songs we sing, would you um, continue to drive home to our hearts the reality of your great love for us and what has been shown to us in the gospel? As we have this opportunity to say back to you, thank you, would you come? And uh, as the old hymn writer said, would you put the words in our lips? Would you, would you, by your spirit, cause our mouths to move? Would you cause our hearts uh, to wake up from their slumber, their hard-hearted sleep of, of, a, of a winter's rest and would you would springtime come to our hearts that we might feel 
the emotions that attend with the gratefulness for all that you've done for us, and then would you give us strength that we might, not only in this moment, but in, in, in going from this place, that we might put into practice the habit with our wills of the discipline of giving thanks to you so that we might be a people not that live in ingratitude and entitlement, it's gross um, pride and arrogance of our hearts, but that we would be humble, grateful, and therefore always patient with others. That you might be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the irony is, is that since the idea that we can do anything uh, that would merit us his love and favor is off the table, then now, just as a father who looks at his uh, newborn, you know, his one-year-old son when he takes his first step, he doesn't chide the child because he can't do it perfectly on his first attempt, but he applauds and he claps and he is full of joy. Uh, so our father looks at us, again, because it's off the table that we'll ever do anything that would merit his love. So now, in love towards us, he looks at us, even as we flail and fall and limp along uh, with the words, well done. And that's the promise of this benediction, is that if your faith is in Jesus, no matter how incomplete your obedience might be, uh, that there's grace and mercy for you, and that the Father is well pleased because of the work of his true Son, uh, who is your righteousness. And so rest and receive, receive and rest in the promise of this benediction, and then go knowing you're an unworthy servant, but also that you're an an inheritor of the heavenly kingdom, and that all the promises of his spirit uh, go with you to make sure you fulfill the work that he's called you to. Receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.